Hello everyone, it's good to see you again. It is July 11th, 2022, Monday. Do you like this music? If you don't recognize it, it's from The Last Samurai, just so you know. You know who the composer was for that movie? The one and only Hans Zimmer, that's right. A modern day John Williams. If you don't know who John Williams is, you should probably get a film history book of some sort. All right, those of you who are new, <laughs> what we do here is uh, we read some poems, I analyze them, you offer your thoughts, and we talk. I share some stories, say some edifying things for your life, and you have a restful evening, right? Thank you so much to all my... Uh, followers, thank you so much for being here. Yes, it's been quite a few times, quite a few days actually. Uh, just been preoccupied with things that are a little bit more um, important uh, in my life right now. So, and uh, I don't do this for a living. Just so you know, <laughs> it would be interesting. I don't know. I don't know what that would be like, but. I don't know. Somebody asked me the other day, like, what do I do? <laughs> what do I do during the day? So that's actually a really good question. So um, anyway, those of you who don't know me, what I do is I'm actually a professor. I do teach material related to media studies and uh, maybe some poetry. But um, that was like a former pro professorial life that I had. <laughs> but now it's mostly just media, media studies. So. A lot more happier, actually. Actually, a lot more happier teaching the content that I'm teaching. So I like to do this for fun. This is totally out of something that um, I just do it for passion. And I read, I read poems. Um, I would say on a nightly basis, not as much as I would like, but definitely at least maybe one or two, and then I move on. So I might as well just read to people who would love to hear some good words maybe feel motivated and moved and then uh, you know um, help you with the rest of your evening so thanks so much for being here y'all you guys ready I have some poems here that I have not read before on a live and I think it would be interesting to see what you all think and these these have nothing to do with love per se but I think they'll they're still moving I think they're still they are still important to read so hopefully you y'all will like it and i hope that he um oh nice congrats jen that's actually a good thing yeah he's he seems like a winner <laughs> so far so awesome 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 all right can i read y'all a poem that I have not read before. It is written in 1971. So 1971. And um, I don't know if you guys remember a poem that I read by Stevie Smith. It's called Not Waving But Drowning. Anyway, this is another one that was written by Stevie Smith. And I have actually never spent a lot of time reading this one. And so once I looked over it today, I realized, whoa, I mean, Stevie Smith actually did write some really, really profound 
poems. I mean, if you haven't read not not waving but drowning, it's it's a very very alarming poem. But this one seems to have like a little slightly different intonation. So I want to see if you guys can figure it out before I offer my analysis. So y'all ready? Okay. So if you're new to the live, once again, make sure you have some AirPods or some earphones and um I think the rest will take care of itself. Nespa? All right. Here we go. We are going to start in three, two, one. I have a friend at the end of the world. His name is Breath of Fresh Air. Let me do that again. Sorry. I was a little bit lost. <laughs> Let me do that again. One second. Here we go. I have a friend at the end of the world. His name is a breath of fresh air. He is dressed in gray chiffon. At least, I think it is chiffon. It has a peculiar look, like smoke. It wraps him round, it blows out of place, it conceals him. I have not seen his face, but I have seen his eyes. They are as pretty and bright as raindrops on black twigs in March and heard him say, I am breath of fresh air for you. I change by and by. Black March, I call him, because of his eyes being like March raindrops on black twigs. Such a pretty time when the sky behind black twigs can be seen stretched out in one uninterrupted Cambridge blue as cold as snow. But this friend, whatever name, new name I give him, is an old friend. He says, whatever names you give breath of fresh air, a change for you. The end. <laughs> it doesn't say the end, but that is the end. So that one was called Black March by Stevie Smith. What do you guys think? It's interesting, no? Once again, if, you ha if you're not familiar with Stevie Smith's work. One of the most famous poems written by Smith is Not Waving But Drowning. So here we have a different scenario. Whoever the persona is, we don't know where they are. Could be out in the mountains, could be out in the lake, could be out in just some kind of forest. 
but they contemplate something. They contemplate perhaps their life. They contemplate perhaps what they're seeing. They're contemplating something. And what's interesting is that this thing or idea that the speaker is referring to also speaks. By the way, here's another technique whenever you do analyze poems. Never assume that the poet is the one that's talking. Okay? There's always a persona, okay, a speaker. So whenever you are actually trying to analyze a poem, you analyze the speaker of the poem, not the author, not the not the poet. You can do that with some of them, but usually it's wiser just to stick to the poem itself. So all those, um, remember that phrase, think outside the box? No, you can't do that with poetry. You have to think within the box. And that's not a bad thing, by the way, okay? Stick, only stick to what you actually have in front of you. Don't go off into this, like, metaphysical, you know, existential world that, you know, you're trying to really, really try into, like, tie in some things that, some concepts that are just, like, a little bit, a little bit too far-fetched. It's not, it's not that it's not possible, but once again, the technique here is that you should just stick to the persona or stick to the material that is in front of you. So if they mention those ideas, if they mention those existentialism, if they mention those metaphysical attributes, then by all means, make those connections. But if not, then just refer to the poem as itself, right? So, it wraps him around, it blows out of place, it conceals him. I have not seen his face, but I have seen his eyes. They are as pretty and bright as raindrops on black twigs. In March, I heard him say, I am a breath of fresh air for you, a change by and by. So the speaker of the poem refers to this weird, you know, breath, right? This weird thing as Black March. Anybody know what a Black March is? Nobody knows? So, in the British Isles, Black March is a term that is used when the English and the Welsh and some of the Scots, when they refer to a, a, a springtime that is just so, so gloomy. Okay, I mean, if, you, if you've never been to the British Isles, it's usually cloudy, like, maybe two-thirds, maybe not that much. Yeah, we'll just say two-thirds. I would say between like half and two-thirds. So maybe like four-sixths, I guess. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> which is two-thirds. Anyway, um, 
it's so gloomy that it almost seems like everything is kind of ugly and it's not exactly like it doesn't look springy okay there's no flowers coming up yet everything's muddy um you know and not to be morbid here but like the irish whenever <laughs> back in druid times they used to bog people <laughs> during black march and if you don't know what bogging means uh it, it's a practice it's an old practice an old druid practice where they would bury either the dead or the enemies they would bury their bodies and like basically pin them down into a swampy area into a marshy area sorry marsh um and so it's <laughs> black march is very conducive to bo bogging so if you're not familiar with that you should look it up point being is that it's a very very like dark time even though it's a preparation of something going that's going to be inducing life right like like flowers you know birth of new creatures things like that so here we have a persona that refers to what whoever this thing is talking from right it refers to black march so what does that imply well it implies that it's a thing that will transport you to an afterlife. Now, do not get that confused with death, okay? That's not what that exactly is. That's not what Black March is. It's not death. But it's sort of like the helper of death how many of y'all i'm sure there's a lot of you that have watched um uh what's it called the one with uh brad brad pitt oh shoot i forgot the name of the movie <laughs> it's on the tip of my tongue juanita one of you one of y'all tell me the name of the that movie where Red Pit plays a plays death. Dang it! I forgot what the name of the movie is called. Anyway, his character is kind of like um, Black March. That's right, Meet Joe Black. That's the one. Thank you so much. Yeah, Meet Joe Black. So if you ever watch that film, it's a really great. It's actually a really great film. Seriously, like the cinematography is amazing the cast is even more amazing and then the storyline is just so so genuine right so like so simple but yet just a very very like it has like a unique tone right so it's got like a mix of classy like classism but also at the same time um kind of like a just a very like general generalized for the general audience so to speak right so where, where am I going with this? So, Joe Black is just a nickname, obviously, but his character, he's supposed to represent death, but but he's not death himself. So he's just like a transporter, right? So he's like the one that actually takes people and prepares them to, towards death, right? And so um, the reasoning behind Joe Black 
is fantastic, right? Because like here you have this like thing, right? And you can't really call it a being because it, he's not really alive. I mean, he's using you know a, a dead person's body, but he doesn't have a he doesn't really have a personality, which is why the movie is so great. Because here you have this like rich guy that he knows he's gonna like die because <laughs> death is waiting for him, right? And yet he's like he made a deal with him. He was like, all right. You can take me, you know, he, I'm paraphrasing here, but okay, I'll make a deal with you. You can take me if you give me some extra time, right? And in that time, I'll teach you the ways of what we do here on earth, right? The ways of, of human beings, right? The way we talk about things and the way we think about things and the way we, we express things, right? And so death here is like, or the representative is like, just, just like experiencing everything new for the first time, right? Like the foods, right? Like, you know, the, the way you dress, right? The actual like sunlight and, you know, what is all this, right? And then the best part about the entire film is how he experiences love, which is almost like another type of death, right? Because now you are like dying to yourself, it's a very profound movie. Like I'm telling you, it's it's one of those movies where people just kind of like don't see the deeper meaning of that film other than the surface level, which is still fantastic. So the connection here with this poem is the exact same thing, right? So like this person that is talking is actually having a conversation with this representative of Black Death. Right? Like it even speaks to him. Right? Look, look what he look look what this this black uh death representative says, right? He's like, I am the breath of fresh air for you, a change by and by. So that's the first part he says. And then the second part he says whatever names you give me, right? Whatever names you give me, you can call me whatever you want, Joe Black, right? <laughs> I am a breath of fresh air, a change for you. Now, think about that. I am a breath of fresh air, a change for you. What happened to Anthony Hopkins' character at the end of the film? when he knew that this was his time. He actually is happy to go. He is actually ready to go. He is actually at peace. I was talking to a couple people this week and one in particular was sharing some details about a certain friend that is going through some really, 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 like, just horrific times, health-wise. And apparently they've been suffering with this illness for quite some time. And, you know, I could tell, obviously, they were in distress and just kind of saddened by it. And, you know, I certainly... Uh, well... Sometimes 
there's a peaceful release knowing that you're going to die. And you can't really understand it, you can't really explain it unless you actually are going to die. Unless unless you actually are dying. You know, it's it's there's a song by um just for all you for all y'all that um are country's country fans, there's a song by Tim McGraw. I'm pretty sure he didn't write it, but anyway, it's called Live Like You're Dying. It's a great song. And it's not the first song that talks about that, by the way. But that's the one that I just remembered yesterday, or just now. Anyway, the idea here is that, like, you know, once you actually accept and you know that you're going to die, you know, that's the moment that you actually start living. And, uh, you know, I, um, not to share too much detail here, but I was, at one point in my life, I was a little bit worried that, um, I have a a particular Ill, illness, um, and when I was younger, I used to worry that I was going to die kind of young, <clears throat> and of course, you know, most of my relatives were all concerned, um, and it took me years to realize, like, hey, you know, if I know that I'm going to die, then I should do things that I really find meaningful, right? That are meaningful. And uh, it changed my perspective on the people that I meet, the people that I talk to, or, and even my attitude, actually. Like, the way I actually speak to people. And, you know, one of the great things about age is that you grow with wisdom and you grow with patience. And, you know, when people get upset about something, you know, they want to post all these things online about, like, how upset they are. And I realized, like, man, like, is this really, is this, is this truly the way you want to be remembered is this truly the way you want to spend your last few breaths is this the way you want to spend your time sure some people will say absolutely that's what i find most significant and then the rest of us will be like no (laughs) i'd rather i'd rather leave a legacy for my friends and family and you know have sweeter words have more patience, have more time just to sit on the couch with them and not say a word. And, um, I recently saw a short little clip actually with Ed Sheeran, by the way. Ed Sheeran was talking about how he uses Instagram and you know, being a media scholar, like, he hit the nail on the head. And I, I figured I could share, since I, you know, that's actually my expertise. Um, you know, we, we actually do use social media in the wrong way, by the way. Like, we use it, most of us use it for some type of gratification and, you know, some type of fulfillment. But but the fulfillment in the sense of, like, a psychological fulfillment, 
not necessarily for business. And that is what Ed Sheeran was uh, elaborating on. So he talked about um, how he uses Instagram. And the only, the only purpose for his use of Instagram is to promote his songs, to promote his business, right? To, to promote his craft. That's it. He doesn't actually like post selfies on there. He doesn't. He doesn't post stuff to gain some type of you know gratification. And he actually had a very very smart response to his friends, his own friends that actually do post selfies. And this is exactly it. And there's like tons of research paper on this, by the way. But. Whenever a person posts, and this is coming from Ed Sheeran, okay, I'm paraphrasing his words here, but whenever he sees a post from his friends posting a selfie, he actually calls them either right away or like soon thereafter. And he actually asks them, is everything okay? Do you understand? So he's actually genuinely concerned that there's something lacking in their life that they're worried, right? So maybe they had a really, really bad day, right? A really crappy day. And therefore, they're, they're wanting some type of consolation, right? Some type of, they're reaching out, they're reaching out to people. And so that's what Ashirin said, you know, and I was thinking, this is exactly it. Like, he's al- he obviously went to, well, I don't know if you know his, his educational background, but He actually went to one of the most prestigious schools in the world. And so, um, and that was a smart response. You know, that's exactly it, you know. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? So, the title of the poem is called Black March by Stevie Smith. It's a great little poem. I love the tone of it, right? I have a friend at the end. Right? I, th- I have a friend at the end of the world. What a what a what a kind-hearted way of addressing something you don't even know that well until you actually are at the, are at its like doors, right? I want to share one last piece of information. I think it might be very significant to, to most of y'all. Uh, when I was 15, I lost my mother. And I remember uh, before she lost conscience, conscience, she was not able to speak proper, very well. And she wrote a note on a piece of paper that was the that was her way that was her only way of communicating with somebody and of course 15 i was you know very sad and freaking and worried you know i didn't know what was going on my brother was there and well i could tell he was also worried he's older than me by the way so my mom looked at him and looked at me you know and obviously i was in tears and then she turned to my brother <clears throat> she started writing something on a, on a piece of paper and then she gave it to him 
and then uh, and then he, my brother gave it to me and, he, and she wrote she said don't worry I will be okay I would like to believe that she knew that she was going to pass away and I could tell and I would like to believe that she was at peace which to me I think I'm pretty sure she was she was at peace so that's what this poem that tone that you have with this representative of death it's a very kind hearted tone you know you welcome it you treat it as a friend you're not scared of it and it's not supposed to be scary it's supposed to be a change for the better I would like to add, by the way, I would like to add this. Stevie Smith um, does come from a Christian background. So if that tells you anything, um, I certainly don't want to imply anything else to the rest of y'all, but I started to realize just a few months ago when I started reading Stevie Smith's work again. Basically, the idea here is that um, there's like a hope that Christians have when it comes to death. So, anyway. What was written on the uh, piece of paper that said, uh, don't worry, I will be okay. And in fact, there was another one. <laughs> there was another piece of paper. I didn't share this one. Um, it was uh, it was Proverbs 18, 18, 18.21, I believe. 18, 18.18? 18.18. It says, um, I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. I will not die but live and proclaim what the Lord has done. That was definitely the most significant note I've ever seen in my life to this day. Once again, I, I would like to believe that she knew that she was going to pass away and she was accepting it. It's pretty incredible, man. That woman was amazing. She was a, um, when she was younger, she was a tomboy. And <laughs> in the village where she grew up in Chile, she was tough. She was a tough, tough girl. She used to play marbles with the boys. And uh, she was so competitive that this one time she actually uh, lost to this one kid that was kind of like a show off. <laughs> she punched him in the face. <laughs> And of course she ran away and, and, and hid. And of course the kid that got punched told his mom. And then obviously his mom called my grandmother. And uh, and, she, and my mom had hid by the time 
the grandma, my grandmother uh, found out about it. <laughs> and so, yeah, my mom was a, she was a tomboy. She was a tough, tough girl. And, uh, yeah, so many great things about that woman. She, she taught me a lot. She, she taught me, she taught me how to, how to, she, she's, just so you know, okay, just so you know. I, and I'm, and I'm, I'm sharing this with y'all because I've been getting a lot of messages from, well, not a lot, but I'm getting some messages from y'all saying that, like, how do I know, I, I wouldn't put it that way, but like, why is it that I'm so approachable to a woman? Like, like, how is it that I'm able to talk to them with ease? And, you know, I can't give you like an exact blueprint, but I will say that it's because of my mom was the one that like forced me to like go and talk to girls because I was a really shy guy, like super, super shy. And I didn't really want to go to parties and, you know, I just, I just wanted to be home. I didn't want to do anything, any of those things. I, I loved playing sports and I wanted to play sports. I, that was like my, my social outlet. But in terms of like girls and stuff, I never, I, I hardly wanted to go out with girls. But she's the one that like pushed me to meet girls and, uh, she, you know, she forced my brother to like go buy clothes and like go buy outfits for like dates and stuff and so I, I learned at a young age, like all about all that stuff. So she was, <laughs> she was very instrumental in my life in terms of uh, how to, how to talk to girls and like just go out with them. So, like I said, great woman, definitely a good one. My dad, my dad definitely got spoiled. <laughs> my dad. My dad's a ma great man. He's still alive. Has not remarried, by the way. That's amazing, isn't it? And and it's not for lack of trying. Like I think I I remember there was this lady that he was seeing. And and I and I actually know <laughs> I, I know I know her daughter. <laughs> not in that way. Just so we're clear. Not in that way. But um, but it was a little strange. So, so, uh, yeah, uh, it didn't work out between them, but ever since then, he's been, he's been pretty happy by himself. And I honestly think he, I, I mean, he won't tell me, but I honestly think that love he had for my mom was so profound. It's almost like you can't really, you can't replace it, you know? So, I th oh man, this is such a great, this is a different life for sure. There's a different vibe in this life, that's for sure. Um, I was thinking just yesterday, actually, I had a really profound conversation with my dad. We were talking about like afterlife, heaven, things like that, and, and um, Uh, it's I wonder I wonder 
my son's mom would recognize me. You know, because, you know, obviously, those of you who know my history a little bit, you know, obviously, I, I spent a significant part of my life with, with my son's mom. So, I know there's couples out there that, are like, completely hate each other. But I don't. I used to. But I don't anymore. That doesn't mean that, like, I, like, have lingering feelings for her. That doesn't mean that at all. It just means that I'm able to mention her name without getting bitter. I'm able to talk about her good in good ways to my son. Right? Whenever he asks about like certain experiences, I'm able to talk about her. That's all it means. And then I was thinking with my conversation with my dad yesterday, I was like, will she recognize me? You know, I mean, I'm not like concerned about it. It was just a thought, right? Because then I, I thought the same way. Will I recognize her, right? And then why? Why would I recognize her? Why would I? Why would I? And why wouldn't I? Right? So there's like multiple, you know, variable questionnaires in those in both those categories. Which will take a little too long to, uh, you know, unfold them all, but, but it's interesting, you know. I would like to believe that, you know, whoever I do end up with, because I'm going to assume that the good Lord has another woman for me somewhere, somewhere, and I'm also going to assume that. I'm going to be very much in love with her, that she will be a great, significant part of my life. So then, you know, how does that work into the equation, right? Anyway, all good thoughts, all good thoughts. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Definitely something that I um, was struck by just yesterday, so... It's not, I don't think about this stuff all the time, just so we're clear. <laughs> it's just, it's just a thought exercise, right? Which leads me to another Stevie Smith poem. This one's called Pretty. Once again, we're reading poems that I have not read in, on a live before. And um, I thought it would be interesting for you guys to be exposed to some of these great works by Stevie Smith. All right. Are you all ready for another poem by Stevie Smith? This one is called Pretty. You ready? All right. Let's see what this great woman wrote. Pretty, written in 1966 by Stevie Smith. Why in the word pretty so underrated? Why is the word pretty so underrated? 
In November, the leaf is pretty when it falls. The stream grows deep in the woods after rain, and in the pretty pool, the pike stalks. He stalks his prey. And this is pretty too. The prey escapes with an un underwater flash, but not for long. The great fish has him now. The pike is a fish who always has his prey. And this is pretty. The water rat is pretty. His paws are not webbed. He cannot shut his nostrils, as the otter can. And the beaver, he is torn between the land and water. Not torn, he does not mind. The owl hunts in the evening and it is pretty. The lake water below him rustles with ice. There is frost coming from the ground. In the air mist, all this is pretty. It could not be prettier. Yes, it could always be prettier. The eye abashes, it is becoming an eye that cannot see enough. Out of the wood the eye climbs. This is prettier. A field in the evening, tilting up. The field tilts towards the sky. Though it is late, the sky is lighter than the hill field. All this looks easy, but really... It is extraordinary. Well, it is extraordinary to be so pretty. And it is careless. And that is always pretty. The f this field, this owl, this pike, this pool are careless as nature is always careless and indifferent. Who sees, who steps, means nothing. And this is pretty. So a person can come along like a thief. Pretty. Stealing a look, pinching the sound and feel, lick the icicle broken from the bank, and still say nothing at all only cry pretty cry pretty 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 and you'll be able very soon not even to cry pretty and so be delivered entirely from humanity this is prettiest of all it is very pretty what do you guys think the title of this one is called Pretty by Stevie Smith, written in 1966. Isn't that lovely? Another great, great, fascinating, fascinating English poet. I keep saying to all y'all, English poetry is some of the best, if not the best in the world. You know, and that's coming from a Hispanic, by the way, where we have some really good poets. 
so much is happening here, right? Like this idea of like of pretty, right? This is not, by the way, let's clarify here. This is not about like people's looks. Okay, that's not, that's not what pretty means here. It has nothing to do with pe people's looks. This has nothing to do with like the aesthetics of a human being, right? This, and, and in fact, this is more about like the prettiness of everything else, right? Like of nature, right? Animals, plants, right? Atmosphere. But then Stevie Smith actually says something very, oh, sorry, let me, let me reiterate what I said before. The speaker of the poem actually says something very, very interesting at the end, right? Let me read that last part one, more, one last time so I can sort of like click for y'all. So a person, I'm going to read the last two verses. So a person can come along like a thief, pretty, stealing a look, pinching the sound and feel lick the icicle broken from the bank and still say nothing at all only cry pretty cry pretty 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 and you'll be able very soon not even to cry pretty and so and so be delivered entirely from humanity this is prettiest of all it is very pretty do you guys get that last two lines? And soon be delivered entirely from humanity. This is prettiest of all. Oh, this is this is good. This is a great poem. You know why? <laughs> Let me show you guys. Let me show you. Okay. My all-time favorite novel in the world <laughs> is Lord of the Flies by William Golding. If you're not familiar with that story, uh, I'll, I'll spare you the details, but let me just summarize it by saying that it is a short story. So Jennifer says, forgetting that you exist and just being, if if it makes sense. Um, kind of, kind of. So let me, let me, let me finish the, the monologue with the story, William Golding, Golding story. So in The Lord of Flies, you have a bunch of kids that get stranded on an island because they were being transported during a world, the World War. And they crash into this island. This is a fictional story, by the way. And, of course, once they realize that all the kids are alive still, except the adults are all, they're not there. So, basically, what happens is these kids, by themselves, okay, without parents, without adult supervision... They actually form their own culture, right? They form their own, like, tribes. And in these tribes, they, like, designate, like, certain tasks. Like, you have the hunters, you have the builders, you have, like, the gatherers, right? The cooks, all that stuff, right? So, like, all these kids actually, like, form their own 
societies, right? And the best part of the entire story, the entire story, is that these kids actually start, <laughs> these kids actually start like destroying themselves, right? They actually start envying each other. So they like start attacking one another. You see what's happening here? So like, even in the most innocent looking human beings that you can think of, right? Which is usually children. Even in those innocent human beings, there is a darkness inside. And that darkness is usually what's not pretty. Which is why in this particular piece by Stevie Smith, she writes, and so be delivered entirely from humanity. This is prettiest of all. You see, Stevie Smith, even from the beginning of the poem, she's want, or I'm sorry, the speaker of the poem is wanting us to realize that we do have this underrated understanding of the word pretty because we just associate it with like the most surface level type of definition. We don't actually realize that, you know, the change of the seasons is part of the prettiness, the sort of like circle of life, so to speak, is the prettiness, right? Like the dark, like the, the, the death aspect. And then here at the end, she says, delivered entirely from humanity. So like, once you realize that you, once you recognize like all of the defects of humanity's darkness and you flee from it, that is what the speaker of the poem is implying. That's the prettiest. You become freer from all the selfishness. You become freer from all of the sort of like lying. You become freer from, you, can, you become free from, right? The pain, the anger, the jealousy, right? The conniving, right? Sadness, all that. Those are all part of the darkness, right? So those two lines are so good. <laughs> Be delivered entirely from humanity. Now, that's not to say that, you know, those that those of you who like to think of humanity in a very positive way, that's great. Okay? Keep that positive outlook for sure. But eventually we'll realize that like even if we try ourselves to formulate our own like organization, our own society of humanity, we're still tainted with the darkness. And so, yes, we need to be delivered from this darkness. Right? 
This is the prettiest of, of all. It is very pretty. Another great poem by the wonderful Miss Florence Margaret Smith, also known as Stevie Smith, an English poet. I like to believe way beyond her time. Fantastic woman. Very thankful for her. Yeah. Isn't that great, guys? So wonderful. And I totally nailed it with this background music, by the way. <laughs> hey, it takes me some time, y'all. I'm just saying. I review, like, a lot of, like, content online in terms of, like, music tracks and other stuff, you know. Because, like, part of my research is doing a bunch of, like, content analysis stuff. Anyway, so it takes me a while to, like, finally figure out, okay, what's one that I can use to talk about, like, certain themed poems? And this is it, man. <laughs> You're welcome. All right, we're going to do a couple more, and then we'll call it a night here. And let me see if I can get another Stevie Smith poem in here. Uh, I'm really liking her stuff this evening. Let's see. There's got to be something here. I mean, I guess we could do waving, not waving, but drowning again. All right. Maybe we can do... Okay. Here's one. This was, this one's interesting. I have not spent enough time thinking about this one, but... Um, let me just make sure. <laughs> Sorry, I just saw another title of one of her poems. You're not going to believe this title. I, oh, man, this got, this has to be funny. Look, y'all, seriously, the title of this poem that I'm laughing at is called Souvenir de Monsieur Poop. <laughs> I'm trying to see if it's if it actually is funny. Let me see real quick. I have never been known to say a word. Mm. No, it's not. It has a little bit of sarcasm, but it's not that funny. But I, I think I'll read it anyway. You guys want me to read this? This is the, this this. I did not expect this one. So the title of this one, also by Stevie Smith, is called "Souvenir de Monsieur Poop." I kid you not. <laughs> this was written in 1938 so these were before the ones I just read <laughs> y'all ready? <laughs> this one's interesting let me take a quick drink oh man oh man it's so freaking hot in the south I mean, I got the AC on, man, but, like, I feel like I'm, I mean, yes, I do have a long sleeve on, but I like my coziness. All right, here we go. This one is titled, <laughs> this is definitely not a track for this, but I'm going to read it anyway. Souvenir de Monsieur Poop. I am 
the self-appointed guardian of English literature. I believe tremendously in the significance of age. I believe that a writer is wise at fifty. Ten years wiser at sixty. At seventy, a sage. I believe that juniors are lively, to be encouraged with discretion and snubbed. I believe also they are bouncing, communistic, ill-mannered, and, of course, young. But I never define what I mean by youth, because the word undefined is more useful for general purpose of abuse. I believe that literature is a school where only the, who, those who apply themselves diligently to their tasks acquire merit, and only they, after the passage of a good many years. But then, I am an old fogey. I always write more in sorrow than in anger. I am, oft, after all, devoted to Shakespeare, Milton, and, coming to our times, of course, Houseman. I have never been known to say a word against the established classics. I am, in fact, devoted to the established classics. In the service of literature, I believe absolutely in the principle of division. I divide into age groups and also into schools. This is in keeping with my scholastic mind and enables me to trounce not only youth, which might be thought intellectually frivolous by pendants, but also periodical tendencies. To ventilate, in a word, my own political and moral philosophy, when I say that I am an old fogey, I am, of course, joking. English literature, as I see it, requires to be defended by a person of integrity and essential good humor. Against the forces of fanatism, idiosyncrasy, and anarchy. I perfectly apprehend the perilous nature of my convictions, and I am prepared to go to the stake for Shakespeare, Milton, and, coming to our own times, of course, Houseman. I cannot say more than that, can I? And I do not deem it advisable in the interest of the editor to whom I am spatially contracted to say less. <laughs> so, this is the first time I'm spending some time on this one, but <clears throat> once again, this was written in 1938. This is by Stevie Smith, once again. And if you guys didn't uh, follow what's happening here, um, basically, Stevie Smith, and, and we can safely assume that she's the one that's speaking, right? She's representing herself here. 
So, you know, this is basically like a letter, right? This is a letter to the editor of, I'm assuming the, you know, literature publishing agency that she was working for. And this is interesting, like, you know, this was written in 1938, mind you, and already some folks were already trying to sort of like declassify the classics, right? Like Shakespeare, Milton, Hausman, and so many others. So even during this era, this decade, there were people trying to like make them seem less important, right? And usually people who defend them get called all kinds of names, right? Like dinosaurs or, you know, old white people, right? We've heard those terms before. And these are, by the way, these are very like offensive like terminologies, right? Like, you know, I find them offensive and I'm Latino, right? <laughs> so like, I don't think, I don't think that's a, a wise thing to do. And that's what Stevie Smith is actually trying to imply in this letter, right? So like, even though like all of these figures are somewhat old and outdated for some, there's a reason why we need to study them, right? There's a reason why they are housed as classics. There's a reason why they're important, right? Fundamentalism is actually a good thing. I know that's a little bit shocking for some of y'all, <laughs> but we need some foundations. If you don't have a solid rock, then you will quake at the first sign of trouble. And your entire, the, the amount of time and effort you, you spent building that somewhat shaky ground, it will mean nothing. But you can always tell when something has a solid ground. Because even after all of the criticism by all of these people that accuse you for being, you know, in many ways an old fogey, a dinosaur, there's a reason why they still exist, why they still are read, why they still matter. This is another reason why I like Stevie Smith, because she's not afraid to address the importance of maintaining these classics. We need foundations. If you want to break the rules, if you want to bend them, you need some foundations. You know what makes Jackson Pollock, the painter, so great? It's because he knows how to manipulate colors and text, textiles, right? Like the actual like feel of paint. That's what makes Jackson Pollock so great. It's not because he just like started throwing bunch of paint on a on a canvas on a whim the guy actually like knew what he was doing one of the best scenes in a film i've ever watched that explains jackson pollock's work 
is one that comes from one of my favorite films. It's called Ex Machina. You guys want to hear this. Seriously, this is a great film. So just to kind of give you a really, really brief like synopsis of Ex Machina. Ex Machina is about a an AI machine. Okay, AI meaning artificial intelligence. And basically there's a character in the film that is kind of like the CEO of Google, basically. I mean, they don't use Google, but it's the same idea. And so the CEO of Google guy, okay, <laughs> don't worry about his name, but this guy, he's like such a genius, right? Like he basically created the search engine and just like created the internet, basically. <laughs> I mean, to some degree. Anyway, so he invents this brain, this artificial intelligent brain, and basically figures out a way to create a body for it that looks just like a human being, basically like an android. And so he invites one of his best employees from his own company to come and test this out. And those of you who are not familiar, you might want to jot this down, but there's a test, okay? It's called the Alan Turing test, okay? It's, it's technically called the Turing test, but it's named after Alan Turing. If you don't know who Alan Turing is, uh, he's also a Brit that actually uh, created the first computer, okay? He created the first computer. And in order to test and this is this is Turing himself, right? This is Alan himself, like testing his own creation. He wanted to prove that that people would be would not be able to distinguish between a human being and a computer, a robot, by doing this test. And the test was like you talk to this machine, and if the response that you get after your conversation is one that makes you realize in your own mind, right? In your own mind, like after having this conversation with this robot. And then like when that computer responds to you, the moment that you actually forget that you're talking to a computer is the Turing test. You just prove that this computer now has human attributes. And therefore you cannot classify this thing as a computer anymore right? It's a mix now, right? Like it's something more than just a human being. So anyway, this movie, okay, the Ex Machina, the CEO invites his best employee to come and test his robot, his artificial intelligence. And so, you know, he, he, he makes his employee go through several tests. And these tests involve him sitting down behind the glass door and having a conversation with this this AI. And keep in mind this AI is like very very pretty. It's it's designed as a woman by the way. Like it's very very like just very appealing. It looks just like a woman, you know, it's shaped like a woman and it's like it it very much like talks and just like conducts herself as a woman, right? You know, even the body parts are all like you know, female uh, attributes. And so uh, at one point, this employee like sort of like gets kind of freaked out because then he actually like realizes that he's not, he's not talking to a computer anymore. He's talking to an actual like uh, 
autonomous, intelligent being. That's a woman. <laughs> and he's like so freaked out. He goes to um he goes to the CEO and he's like how did you do it? You know, how did you figure it out? You know, how did you, how did you come up with this like incredible invention? And he was like, well, and he's like started explaining to him. And then he's trying to show him like at one point he was like I want you to explain to me why you why you like certain things about certain people. Like what makes you attached to them? What makes you want to engage with them? It can't be just for looks, but but maybe that's it. So he takes the CEO takes him to his art gallery in his like huge mansion. And there's a huge painting of one of Jackson Pollock's work. And of course, if you've never seen a Jackson Pollock work, there's like just so many like intricate lines everywhere. You know, they're like crisscrossing each other just everywhere. You know, it's fascinating. And then he's like, the CEO asks his employee, he was like, okay, I want you to look at it. Tell me what you see. And so the employee is like, starts describing like surface level stuff he's like well i see a bunch of like scribbly lines and you know there's some you know there's some black lines here yellow lines red blue whatever and he was like yeah yeah, yeah i get that but what are you feeling from this poem what makes you feel in this poem what do you feel when you see this poem with this sorry this painting what do you feel when you see this painting and then the employee's like, yeah, there's something interesting happening with this yellow line. And then the employee starts describing like how he's feeling about this line. You know, there's something very intricate about this line, how it moves, right? How it's drawn, right? And how it's like actually like just all sort of connecting itself with the rest of the lines in the entire painting. And then the CEO asked him, what drew you to that one particular line? And the employee says, I don't know. I just know that I like it. And then the CEO is like, that's why when we talk to a machine, and we don't know when we no longer realize it's a machine. We start falling in love with these things and we don't know why. We just are. And that's when the employee realizes, oh man, he might be falling in love with a robot. Isn't that crazy? So where am I going with this? <laughs> In this poem, in order to break the rules and formulate like your own understanding of certain works, you need to have a solid foundation, right? You need to have like the, the ground first. Jackson Pollock would, is not able to paint his work 
unless he knew the contours of the lighting, of the texture, of the actual composition of the paint itself. Same thing goes with literature. You want to read some, shall we say, literature that is pushing the limits? They need to have foundations. That's why fundamentalism is important in any culture. I know that's something that probably some of you don't like to hear, but this is an essential quality of any civilization. You will never have a civilization that doesn't have fundamentals. Never. If that's true, that that society is going is is doomed from the beginning. Sadly. There you go. <laughs> Another great poem by the awesome Stevie Smith. What a woman. It makes me want to have tea time with her, you know, if I ever meet her in heaven, perhaps. We'll see. <laughs> so good. I love it. Love it. All right. Let's do one more. And let's see. Let's, let's do one titled My Hat. You all ready? All right, so this is once again by Stevie Smith. This is written in 1957. And this is called My Hat. Mother said if I wore this hat, I should be certain to get off with the right sort of chap. Well, look where I am now, on a desert island, with so far as I can see no one at all on hand. I know what has happened, though I suppose mother wouldn't see this hat being so strong has completely run away with me. I had the feeling it was beginning to happen the moment I put it on. What a moment that was as I rose up. I rose up like a flying swan, as strong as a swan too. Why, see how far my hands my hat has flown me away. It took us a night to come, and then a night and a day. And all the time the swan wing in my hat waved beautifully. Ah, I thought, how this hat becomes me. First, the sea was dark, but then it was pale blue. And still the wing beat, and we flew, and we flew, a night, and a day, and a night, and by the old right way, between the sun and the moon, we flew until morning day. It is always early morning here, on this peculiar island. The green grass grows into the sea, on the dipping land, and am I glad? I am here? Yes. Well, I am. It's nice to be rid of father, mother, and the young man. There's just one thing causes me a twinge of pain. 
if I take my hat off, shall I find myself home again? So in this early morning land, I always wear my hat. Go home, you see. Well, I wouldn't run a risk like that. Isn't that interesting? It's crazy, no? My hat. Fictional story, obviously. But definitely something that uh, we tend to sort of maybe uh, not see the metaphor metaphorical implications of a hat and um, let's see one second anyway so what do you guys think what do you guys think be getting late. No? Yeah. Anyway, um, lots to think about, obviously. Actually, let me do one more. I said that was going to be the last one, but I want to do one more. <laughs> Since a lot of you are exposed to Stevie Smith's great poems now. Might as well read one of the most referenced ones that she wrote. I personally don't think it's that um, great as her other ones that we just read, but this definitely has this one definitely has um, a lot more references by other people, simply because of the title, I think, and it's a pretty simple message actually. But uh, I think after tonight, you'll definitely remember this poem for sure. Y'all ready? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Somebody's asking. Deanna's asking, what does the hat represent? <laughs> well, in the beginning of the poem, uh, the speaker of the poem was describing, like, like, why her mother and obviously and also her dad indirectly why her mother, her parents were urge, like recommending her to wear this hat because it would make her look more like a lady and therefore she would be more recognizable and have, shall we say, more chances to meet a gentleman, right? So think about that for a second. Like, um, what does that actually imply when you wear this hat? That it has like this magic powers or something? You know, we don't know. I'm not sure, but um, so there it is, right? So that's what the name, that's what the hat is about. And then she gets to a point where like she doesn't wear the hat anymore, but then she realized like 
if I don't wear this hat, then I'm disobeying my parents. And therefore, all these, like, morals and, like, shall we say, um, <laughs> all these morals, like, basically, like, are lost without this hat. And so she chooses to wear the hat as a sign of not just respect of her parents, but also as a sign of like realizing, hey, like I'm also going to have like my found fund my foundation with me as well. Are you guys starting to see like there's a pattern in all her works, by the way? Like Stevie Smith wrote these poems like with this this idea of like fundamentalism as the grounding for her works, basically, right? So, everybody understand what's happening now? <laughs> All right, let's do one more, and uh, we'll call it a night. All right, so this one's called Not Waving But Drowning also by Stevie Smith. Y'all ready? Nobody heard him, the dead man, but still he lay moaning. I was much farther out than you thought. And not driving, what? And not waving, but drowning. Poor chap. He always loved larking. And now he's dead. It must have been too cold for him, his heart gave way, they said. Oh, no, 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 it was too cold always. Still the dead one lay mourning. I was much too far out all my life, and not, dra not waving, but drowning. So, it's a simple message, right? A lot of times we sort of, you know, view people on a very surface level that we don't really want to spend time, like, actually getting to know them. And then, um, like, basically, like, we fail to see the signs of what it is that they're actually going through. You remember my little um, reference about how Ed Sheeran um, like how Ed Sheeran talks about like the use of Instagram right so if you guys forgot so Ed Sheeran basically had a very very like profound and simple way of like the the, the dangers of Instagram so the way he uses it is for marketing purposes. He only uses it for, for business purposes. So he promotes his music on his account. Now he you know he has friends that use uses Instagram to like post selfies and things like that. But he actually he genuinely worries about those friends because for him it's a sign that, you know, there's something that they had a bad day perhaps and therefore they're asking for somebody's help to listen to them 
And so what does he do? He contacts them and he says, hey, is everything okay? Right? So that's the idea, right? Like when you are invested in someone or wanting to invest in someone, you do everything you can to talk to them and let them know that I genuinely want to listen to you. I genuinely, genuinely want to hear how you are. I don't do this with a lot of people, by the way. I only do it with people that I find very significant in my life. So if I talk to you, it's because I actually want to talk to you. And I want to listen to you. And I want you to know that like, whenever you do have days that are going to be troublesome and hectic for you, that I'm, I'm ready anytime, anytime you want to listen. You know, just like the poem, the title of the poem, you know, you're not waving, but drowning. And so I don't want you to drown. I genuinely want to help you as much as I can. Once again, I don't do this for everybody. Only people that I find significant in my life. Right? So which mainly is like my brothers, my dad. And, um, and certain people. So, I don't know how it is with every other guy out there. I don't know. I don't represent all men. But I believe, but <laughs> believe me when I say that I, that I genuinely care for those that I want to talk to. Right? So, if I don't talk to you, then obviously I don't care. <laughs> but I mean that I mean that in a like respectful way, just so you know. Like I like like it means a lot. It means a lot for me to talk to you because I am I'm definitely like investing so much time and effort into you. Because there's something about you that I'm very much attracted to. And and I want to learn more about you, right? I want to learn more about you. I want to learn like the things that frustrate you. I want to learn things that, yeah, that's right, the southern sides. I want all of that. Do you understand? I know you. I know you understand. But once again, I just want to make it clear that like. I don't do this for just random people. That doesn't mean that I'm going to be mean to others, right? That doesn't mean that I'm going to be like unpolite to others. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to be disrespectful to others. But the way I show affection for somebody is when I talk to you. Because talking for me is like a level of genuineness that is um, 
difficult for me to like fake. Like I'd rather be 100% honest and real with you in, in all aspects of my life. And the way I do it is through conversation. Right? Yes, I like dressing up nice. And yes, it's nice to wear like these nice clothes and, you know, get some tattoos or whatever. Like I like stuff like that. But in the end, like the way I connect with somebody is through conversations. So yeah, I genuinely want to connect with you. So like I said, so far it's my dad, my brothers, and then very few people that aren't directly related. So, once again, title of the poem is Not Waving But Drowning. And by the way, one last thing, one last thing, one last thing I'll say here. Because I like investing words into a person that I am really interested in. I don't expect anything back. But just know that it really does. It's very honorable when you do. Right? It's very honorable. It, it, it's, it, it's, it humbles me, but it also honors me. And it makes me appreciate you even more. Right? It may, you may not know all the reasons why. And perhaps we won't know, we won't have like def definitive answers for a long time, you know, for who knows how long I'll get to know you. But at least during the way, right? At least during that process. There'll be milestone steps. And once again, that's done through conversations. Anyway, hope you all enjoyed these works by Stevie Smith. If you don't know who she is, she's a wonderful English poet from the early 1900s. Born and raised in the United Kingdom, died in a small town called Ashburton in 1971. She wrote a lot of great poems, and you should definitely read some poems from her. A great woman indeed. All right, y'all, I'm going to call it a night. Thank you so much for being here. It was really, really nice to share these poems with you. I hope it helped you in some form. But if not, uh, definitely take some time to um, get to know this wonderful English poet, for sure. Anyway, 
Pleasure as always. Hope you all have a nice evening. Get some rest. <laughs>